This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Brendan Crabb AC. Brendan is the Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute, a medical research and public health institute based in Melbourne. In this conversation, Brendan reflects on how the pandemic has evolved. He addresses some of the myths and misinformation around COVID-19, its transmission, and ways to stop its spread. He also addresses the long-term effects of COVID-19, which include long COVID. Brendan tells us what living with COVID really means. I'm really delighted to be able to welcome onto the program today, Professor Brendan Crabb. Now, Brendan is Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne, and he is also President of both the Australian Global Health Alliance and the Pacific Friends of Global Health, which are two bodies that advocate for better health equity. There are many other aspects to Brendan's experience and expertise. He is a microbiologist and a parasitologist, and he obviously advocates on a wide range of issues, uh, particularly public health issues and infectious diseases. And he's been a prominent figure in this COVID-19 pandemic. And regular listeners to this program certainly have said how much they appreciate hearing from experts like Brendan and, of course, um, our regular from the last couple of years, Professor Mary Louise McLaws. So I'm absolutely delighted to have Brendan join me today. Hi there, Brendan, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. It's a great pleasure. I've just been really, really wanting to talk to you for quite a while, and I've had a whole list of questions and thoughts I wanted to ask you. So we're really going to be focusing on a whole range of topics in this conversation. It's going to be pretty wide ranging. And I think it's going to reflect not only the things that I've really wanted to know, but also things that listeners, everyone around me, I've noticed has kind of had a either misunderstanding around the information, there's been confusion a lot of the time around how this pandemic has evolved and what the virus is like and what its effects are and you know what kind of public health measures will be most effective. So these are the kinds of things that we'd like to touch on and I know that will be so valuable for everyone else. So I can't wait to get down to it. But first of all, maybe we'll just um, start with your personal perspective and experience of this pandemic. And everyone said it's like a one in a hundred year event. So it's, I guess, a big deal for someone in your position to be leading a big body, a public health body in this period. I wonder how have you found it, especially over the last two and a half years and how this situation has evolved so dramatically? You know, I teach pandemics. It's, it's, I don't do a lot of teaching anymore. I used to do it as a full-time job at the University of Melbourne, and I still teach a module on pandemics. And every module starts with, you know what, it's, it's a when, not if question. You know, we will face another pandemic. But, you know, when it actually happened, I was still taken by surprise, you know, even as a person who's been saying that ad nauseum for as long as I have. So imagine if you didn't even live and breathe it, which of course most people haven't. You know, I live in Melbourne too, who's um, as, a, as a city that's, um, you know, born the brunt of it in, in Australia. We often talk about lockdown and, and effects. And of course, Melbourne's experienced more than most. Um, of course, many Australians didn't experience much lockdown at all. Um, you know, so we all experienced it very, very differently. You know, bottom line for me, my biggest frustration amongst many things that I admire. But my biggest frustration is that at the beginning of the pandemic, in January, February 2020, we as a world, especially a rich world, blew it. We blew it. It's inexplicable to me that you would let what we call a zoonotic infection, so an infection that comes from animals, a new infection of humans, that you would take a sort of uh, let's wait and see attitude now, this is not a criticism of Australia. Uh, Australia actually got it pretty right early on. It took us a little while. We were, we were a bit lucky that we were behind where other countries were. But just as a general comment, that really the global health giants of the world, the UK, the US, France, just got it wrong. And the cat got out of the bag and we went from a virus that didn't transmit very well. You know, uh, the original Wuhan strain of the virus transmitted to two or three other people if you did nothing about it. And the current virus that we have now transmits to 14 or so other people. Now, when you do your 
logarithmic maths, a theme I might come back to at times as we chat, Amy, when you do your logarithmic maths, you know, three times three times three is a lot smaller than 14 times 14 times 14. So it's a, it's just like a hard to describe worse thing now because we let it go right at the beginning. And then as a perpetual gripe, we've never really changed as a world. We've never really changed from saying we're somehow going to learn to live with this rather than to turn the thing into reverse. As I say, there's many good things that have happened, but but that's the underlying one for me is one of perplexed frustration over letting it go and therefore the almost certainty that two and a half years later, we would still be here talking about an ongoing pandemic uh, as we are now. Mm. Yeah, I remember when we did start to take it seriously in, I think it was like mid-March 2020. And even a bit before that, I I was covering it on this show with some people in New York who were monitoring what was going on in China. And there was a lot of nerves happening about, well, could it come here? Clearly we have air travel, but it hadn't yet traveled. And I remember, you know, talking to some doctor friends and a lot of them saying, oh, it's just like the flu, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. And I was like, "Mm, are you sure? Based on the, you know, videos coming out of Wuhan, it doesn't really look like the flu. And I wonder whether you agree with this, that even that refrain, well, it's just the flu, isn't it? You know, it's just a cold, it's a coronavirus, just a kind of sniffle. We still hear that commentary even today. Yeah, we do. Look, I describe COVID as the Goldilocks pandemic. It isn't too hot and it isn't too cold if I'm not mixing up my um, stories. Uh, You know, there's been many worse infections. SARS-CoV-2, before that, was SARS. Now, SARS had a 10% fatality rate. So you would immediately say, oh, that must be much worse than SARS-CoV-2, which is you know, at worst a 1% and, and as the tools have got better, it would be a much better than 1% fatality rate. So doesn't that make SARS a worse virus than SARS-CoV-2? So you can see how it's sort of an, an in-between virus. It doesn't kill most people uh, that get infected. And so that is one of the, the on the face of it reasons why it was so easy to say, Mm, I'm not sure that we need to stamp this one out. You know, that, that's where that really came mm. from. Had it been worse, it in fact would have been better, in my view, uh, if that makes sense. And then as things have gone along, and, you know, even now, two years later, we have Omicron come along and the it's mild sort of narrative becomes even stronger, which allows it to spread even more rapidly than this evolving virus already does. So the, look, the, the it's mild, it's just the flu based on the inherent in-betweenness of the virus has killed us, really. It's why we're in the, in the position we're in. I mean, there were many vested interests. Uh, we could talk about the why. Who was saying it's just like the flu? What did they have to gain? There are all sorts of vested interests. We could talk till the cows come home. But if it had been a much worse virus, that narrative would not have taken hold. And, mm. uh, and I think it would have been crushed really quickly, just like SARS was, just like MERS was, or at least the attempt uh, would, would have been made. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a terrible narrative. It's, it's just the flu. I mean, it's easily 10 times worse than the flu. It's also not just a respiratory infection, you know, something we also might talk about. It infects so many organs in your body. Well, I was actually just going to ask you that. Why don't we address that? Because that's something I see lots of people talking about. And when I say people, I mean scientists and doctors and public health people like yourself. And I'll quote one of them. They say, COVID is a multi-systems disease that happens to be transmitted through the respiratory mucosa. So what does that mean? And how does COVID actually affect many different organs in the body? Because a lot of people might think, oh, well, it is just a cold. I mean, you know, you inhale it, you get a cough, you get a runny nose. It's, it seems like it's an upper respiratory tract infection, but actually the science that we now have, and we've actually seen this over, definitely over at least a year, much longer, shows that multi-system organ vascular involvement. That's right. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is just because something is strictly respiratory doesn't make it benign. So, you know, uh, influenza, for example, is a horrible disease and Mm. it can be a really terrible, terrible disease, uh, depending on 
the strain that's around. So, you know, a, a respiratory pathogen can be really bad, but this is way more than that. And it happens in two ways. Really, one is direct. The, the virus actually gets into other tissues, infects other tissues, including and especially microvasculature. So that means the, the lining of your blood vessels and so on, or the, the cells of your blood, and it can get to other tissues that it can infect. The other is as an inflammatory disease, as we call it. So the, the inflammation, that means your immune system, uh, which kind of, you know, we think of as the goodies of our body, right? The immune system is, is our defense, but it can have pathological uh, consequences and overactive immune system. So inflammation can cause damage. And so those two reasons can mean you have obviously significant lung damage. That's one that people understand. Neurological damage, I mean, actual physical neurological damage, uh, as we're seeing, the consequences have yet to be clear. The heart is an organ we're really worried about. You know, the increased frequency of cardiac complications post-COVID, you know, really serious um, concern. And even things of metabolic diseases, you know, so diabetes at an increased risk if you've had COVID. There's certainly a lot of work going on in that space. Now, they're different organ systems, but it might manifest itself as you have brain fog or excessive tiredness, chronic fatigue. I mean, literally chronic fatigue syndrome-like uh, symptoms. In fact, they might be two sides of the same coin, uh, chronic fatigue and, and so-called long COVID. So these are interrelated things, uh, sort of gut symptoms and, and so on. It's much more than a respiratory infection. But even if, especially pre-Omicron, you only considered respiratory, it was terrible you know, on the acute side. And that's where, you know, so many people needed ventilation and, and people died horrible deaths as, as a result of that. But it's, uh, it's unfortunately much more than that. It is just the route that it transmits is, uh, is largely via the respiratory tract and not via any other way. And on a related note, well, actually, I'll bring up some of those specific risks that you were just speaking of. I mean, it would be perhaps surprising for people to realise that even after a mild disease where perhaps they didn't feel really severe symptoms, they weren't hospitalised, and by mild I mean not being hospitalised, they are at an increased risk of blood clotting that could lead to pulmonary embolism, DVT, deep vein thrombosis, stroke, heart attack, uh, microclotting is something we've seen in acute COVID as well as long COVID. So just that alone, I think perhaps people may not realise that there are ongoing effects. Even if you don't end up with long COVID, uh, there might be ongoing risk factors for things that can kill you, essentially, that you might need to keep a look out for and, and to not dismiss your own symptoms if you had chest pain, for example. There's a big lesson in that, Amy. I absolutely agree with those comments. And, uh, and, and certainly it's of no harm to go out and get uh, a cardiovascular check anyway. And men and women, and, uh, and both of us need to. There's a lot of focus on men's cardiovascular health. Women need to uh, equally make sure they get tested frequently and often, uh, especially as they, reach, uh, as they reach middle age, COVID or non-COVID. Um, but yeah, that, that's quite right. Look, there's a lot of precision to be worked out here. But what we can say with confidence is that with a, with a high frequency, not with a low frequency, COVID is leading to other complications that are ongoing, potentially life-threatening. We, we actually don't know the answer. You know, will a very large proportion of our population's uh, life be, be shorter as a result of COVID? We don't know, very much hope that's not the case. You know, will people uh, grow out of their brain fog within 12 months or, or, you know, and go back to normal? We don't know the answers, but we do know that it's it's there, it's substantial, substantial in scale. And it's enough to say, why wouldn't you adopt a precautionary principle to absolutely minimise the number of infections? You know, we have this one-dimensional focus on acute disease, hospitalisations and death, pretty important focus. Huh? Mm. But um, what a blind spot we have to ongoing chronic issues. It's, it's just completely ignored in a policy space, it seems to me, completely ignored. And so, you know, the categoric thing I can say is we know enough to know that that's nuts. We yeah. should have a very heavy focus on that consequence, even though I can't sit here and give you all the details about exactly what those consequences will be. 
Well, we have seen in other countries like the United Kingdom, the United States, where they have had high levels of transmission across all the years of the pandemic. So we were lucky to have low or no transmission in you know, a substantive proportion, but we are now seeing our transmission go up and up and up here. And it is very concerning for that reason of post-viral illness, post-viral syndromes. And we do know that they exist from people getting the flu or getting glandular fever and then not recovering and having a kind of post-viral condition that they don't recover from, that they're disabled from. And this is something that the disability sphere has been concerned about since the beginning of the pandemic was really, well, this if it happened to me and I had a virus, it could happen to someone else. And we've kind of seen it like a slow moving train crash to the point where we now see that there are 1.7 million cases of long COVID reported in the United Kingdom. And we have an idea, a rough idea, that if we have X number of cases, 10 to 30% of those cases will end up with some form of long COVID. So I'd love to ask about transmission with that in mind, because we are seeing our politicians and our chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, say that Australia will be moving from focusing on transmission and cases to only focusing on the acute severe disease end and trying to protect a small group of vulnerable people, quote unquote, but not really focusing on reducing transmission. So I'm just gonna quote from his statement in Senate estimates last week, Paul Kelly said, the general principle will be to move away from reducing COVID-19 transmission to protecting people at higher risk of developing severe disease, essentially reducing harm. The focus will be on supporting normal community functions and minimising disruptions to our health system and society. I'd love to know what you think about that change of approach and that change of strategy, given how transmissible you just said Omicron is, and the fact that our cases are hard to even get my head around uh, because we had about 380,000 last week. I mean, what are your thoughts if, if you have 380,000 cases in a week in Australia and you could have 40,000 people getting long COVID out of that group? What does that mean for the country? Well, it's, uh, it doesn't compute with me because, you know, to, to say you're going to not pay any attention to transmission but care a lot about protecting the most vulnerable and elderly in our society. Those two things are inextricably linked. I don't see how you can do one without the other. There's no magical force shield uh, you can put around the most vulnerable people who want to participate and should participate in our society normally. It doesn't make any logical sense to me at all. The big positive side for Australia, before emphasising my gripes with um, uh, with what Paul Kelly said on that front, is that there's sort of a, more than a minor miracle pulled off in Australia. You know, it, in Australia, almost every eligible person got vaccinated, double-dosed, or had the opportunity to get double-dosed before they encountered the virus for the first time. Now, that is incredible. And in the world, one of only very few examples where that's happened. So. The first thing the Australian government and the states and territories have done is give us all a fighting chance by getting us vaccinated before we got infected. So that that is a good side, and they deserve an enormous credit for that. And then along came Omicron. You know, we're all desperate to get back to more, you know, post-Delta, you know, get back to life. And we had this opening plan, and um, which which kind of got uh, gazumped a bit by the the escape from hotel quarantine or border control in New South Wales. And then we had the second half of 2021 floundering around, deciding whether we're going to open or stick with our, our zero community transmission strategy for a bit longer. Whatever happened, we ended up opening and along came Omicron and we just stuck with that opening strategy. We didn't say, oh, we've got a left field thing here, which was a far more transmissible virus that was far more easily escaping of immunity and the best way to sum that up is that two doses of your vaccine works brilliantly against Delta, but does almost nothing against Omicron. Right? So that's why you need a third dose. And anybody listening to this, if, if they only hear one message from this whole session, please get your third vaccine dose because it'll work really quite well against severe disease for many people. We might come to talk about immunocompromised and, and more vulnerable people in a moment, but please get your third dose. And in some instances, please get your fourth dose 
to make sure you're protected against it. But Delta was dealt with quite well by two doses, right? So we, here we had this, this, in my view, much worse virus, and that'll be a controversial statement in, in that sense. So yeah, maybe slightly less uh, intrinsically severe. We think it's more like the Wuhan strain than the Delta strain. But because it was vastly more transmissible and could access so many more people through immune escape, it is, in my view, a worse uh, virus. We didn't change a thing in Australia. We said, she'll be right. I couldn't believe that was happening. As supportive as I was of what happened in the states and territories up until that point, I was amazed that that happened. The net result was 4,000 deaths. It was millions of Australians getting acutely sick uh, and staying home and their contacts staying home and therefore our health services being severely disrupted both directly because people were sick and indirectly because people weren't at work and our supermarket shops shelves not being stacked and uh, you know just everything you can think of being disrupted because transmission was let go and even then i haven't even mentioned the 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 chronic health impact of that you know we don't even talk about long covid more generally we have in this conversation but just just more more generally so there it happened we all of a sudden I don't know the number, but it's looking, you know, it looks something around half of Australia probably got COVID at that time. And of course, the result of letting viruses go is they continue to evolve. And here we are with an iterative version of Omicron, the so-called BA2, that's now causing the current wave. Another 40,000 cases today, officially, probably unofficially, closer to 100,000 cases in the day. And so on it goes. I personally cannot see any reason why you wouldn't try to restrict transmission Mm. you not only clearly have fewer people die you slow things down you slow everything down that gives your society a chance to keep functioning gives your health system a chance to keep functioning optimally slows down the evolution of the virus you know can you imagine if right from the start all that had happened is that the rate of transmission had only been half what it is, right? So the world did more and halved it, didn't zero it, halved it. I mean, if that had happened because COVID is effectively a logarithmic disease, right? The outcome would have been vastly better than half. We probably wouldn't have seen Delta or Omicron even by yet. We might one day, but the tools we would have to address those by the time that was reached would be vastly better because they're improving all the time. Mm. So letting things go unchecked is both dangerous and illogical from my point of view. Yeah, I know that um, the World Health Organization's Mike Ryan has certainly said similar things, that it's uh, epidemiological stupidity to say that everyone needs to get it. It's inevitable, this language that we should all just give up now and wave the white flag. It's quite astounding to me thinking about the science, but we have seen those public health measures be removed very gradually, but now we're even being told that more will be removed after this Omicron peak has happened, uh, perhaps towards the end of April. So we're not that far away, in fact. We did see over that January Christmas time uh, the change in close contact definitions where we went from being a close contact at work, say if we spent eight hours with someone in close proximity to them in an office space that's open plan, uh, we sit right next to them and they were positive, now we're not a close contact of that person. Only the people that we lived with were potentially close contacts. So to anyone who you know understood public health, I think most people thought that that wasn't a scientific decision, but an economic or political decision. Now we have national cabinet saying that they want to remove the requirement for close contacts, i.e. the people at home, to isolate for the seven days. And we know just how transmissible, as you said, Omicron is, and how likely it is that household contacts will get COVID once it's in your house. So. I'd love to understand from your perspective as a public health expert and someone who understands the science and who understands what reduces transmission, what your thoughts are on these proposed changes to reduce testing, PCR testing especially, they want to restrict it to symptomatic at-risk people um, and also to remove the requirement of isolation. Look, I think when, when taken together with the statements around, we're not gonna worry about transmission anymore, it's a concern, uh, a serious concern. But the, 
It's the bigger picture that I'd like to focus on mostly and then come to the specific interventions. You know, from my perspective, protecting the most vulnerable people in the community, which includes unvaccinated children, by the way, uh, uh, we've still got anyone up to the age of five has not received, and I've got two four-year-olds, hasn't received any vaccine. Now, uh, I'm not saying it's a severe disease of children, but they're unvaccinated and it's not a nothing disease of children. And there's still all those uncertainties to do with the, uh, the you know, the non-acute effects that we need to, to take into account. So the best way to do that is to reduce transmission. The most important thing we can do on all fronts is get vaccinated, uh, get our third dose, and in some instances, our fourth dose, and then say, what have we learned about the virus and the way it transmits? So we've committed to reducing transmission, got to do that first, the opposite of what uh, the last week's statements have been. So what can we do to best as we can interrupt transmission while allowing our society to, to function as best as we can? You know, what, what are the, the COVID versions of seatbelts and licences and speed limits and car registrations to keep our roads safe? What, what are the COVID versions of those that we can we can sign up to. And the biggest thing we've learned as a scientific community, which is a big, big thing that we've learned, is that the virus isn't transmitted in the way we thought it was. It's transmitted in a different way. Now, this is crucial. This is like, um, you know, I work on malaria a lot, Amy, and malaria literally means bad air. And so what we thought, um, my scientific ancestors thought, was transmitted through the air. They were wrong. It's transmitted by insects, by mosquitoes, particular species of mosquito. Once that was discovered, it changed the way malaria was controlled, of course. Just needed to stop people getting bitten, needed to drain swamps, all the rest of it. So this is the same. We, we thought that this would be predominantly a droplet disease, so large respiratory droplets um, getting on your hands or, or hitting someone at very close contact, contaminating services surfaces. It turns out that it's mostly, in fact, an airborne disease transmitted by contaminated air. Yeah, more likely at close range, but still very much happening within much bigger spaces that have contaminated air. Now, that's great. It's not great that it happens, but it's great that we understand that because it means there are very specific things we can do about it. We can provide clean air for starters. We know how to do that now through uh, ventilation filtration systems, UV-based systems. We know how to monitor the air, that even if that can't be done, if the air's bad in the room you're in, you can at least know about it and make sure you don't go into that space. Or when you're in that space, you wear a mask. And we also know now that because it's airborne, a high-quality mask, meaning a, an N95 or equivalent mask, is better. What I mean by that is that most surgical masks or, or less high-quality masks are very good for the sick person, preventing the sick person or the infected person from transmitting to an uninfected person, right? But they're not very good at preventing the uninfected person from breathing in particles around the side of the mask. So a high-quality mask is exceptionally good at protecting both, uh, you know, stopping people from sick, transmitting it to others, and stopping people who are not sick from getting the infection. So clearing the air, high-quality masks, we now know are crucial, and applying those as best we can, one and two on the list. But equal to one and two on the list is knowing whether or not you're infected and then doing something about that, which is to your point of isolation and then isolation of those who are with you. So getting tested is absolutely crucial it's the cornerstone of australia's phenomenal success in the first year or a year and a half and we will be crazy to move away from testing high quality testing by pcr as well as you know the, the appropriate use of these rat tests these rapid antigen tests once you get it positive though you've got to do something about it now i think i hope there's broad acceptance that you should at least isolate it away from other people if you're infected What's worked really well is, especially as it becomes highly transmissible, those in close contact with you obviously have a high chance of getting infected. Now, that's going to happen whether there's ISO rules for them or not, because they're still living close to you. So 
if the theory is we're not going to have ISO rules because we want those people to be out working, well, they're going to get COVID anyway and go into isolation. And all you're going to do is perpetuate, perpetuate transmission. Now, in fairness to the policymakers, they're very aware of these issues and they don't just say ISO or no ISO. They're saying, okay, how can we have our cake and eat it here? When the BA2 wave goes and we've got much lower chance of, of uh, infection in the community, uh, how can we make recommendations for those who are in contact, such as wearing a mask, such as getting tested every day, such as working from home if they possibly can? These are the sorts of suggestions the policymakers are making. So in fairness to them, they're not saying ISO or no ISO, end of the matter. They're saying we, we are concerned, we're very concerned about people who are in contact with an infected person, but we want to try and keep society open. So uh, look, I think it's a healthy debate, but it needs to be seen in, in that package of things. The most important is we care about transmission. If you care about vulnerable people and protecting uh, your community more generally, you have to care about transmission. If you care about slowing down the evolution of the virus, you have to care about transmission. If you care about long COVID, you have to care about transmission. So it's, it's illogical to say we're going to quarantine transmission away from some of these other communities that we'd like to protect. But the mechanisms to do it, we can debate. Mm. You know, so long as they are airborne mitigation uh, at their heart and have testing at their heart, then we can make a, a really big difference. But ignoring those things and, and going into a transmission doesn't matter, vaccine set and forget. I call it. So, you know, we want to vaccinate everyone and, and our government, like many, have been fantastic about vaccination for all the criticism that they get. They've always cared about it. It's always been priority number one. And that's great because it's the most powerful tool that we have. What I don't get is that as it's become clear that vaccines are not the magic bullet, they're fantastic, but they're not the magic bullet, why we haven't matured what we call the plus side of a vaccines plus strategy. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see happen in the second half of 2022 as we get more and more of these, at very least, Omicron-type iterative BA2 waves that we're in at the moment, and at very worst, the next major step change variant uh, that we might see. And, and I would be surprised if we don't see, given that the, the reasons why these variants emerged in the first place still exists. Yeah, absolutely. You raised some really interesting points there about the concerns that the AHPPC have around removing isolation and what could be put in its place. And you mentioned there that perhaps people could work from home, wear a mask, regular rapid antigen tests. One of the things that vulnerable people might bring up is, well, if people aren't choosing to wear a mask now and it's highly recommended by all health you know, professionals and the chief health officers, and it's in every government statement, it's highly recommended, but it's not mandated. If it's not mandated and enforced, then I think a lot of people who are most at risk would worry, well, is it really going to have any impact? Is it going to really protect me? Is it really going to reduce transmission? Is this more a kind of thing of, oh, well, we've put something in place um, and hopefully some of the very conscientious people will follow it. But you know that already people think the pandemic's over. They're going out, they're having fun, they're going to bars. You know, these are the things that we wish we could have done for two years. You know, I talked to a comedian a couple of weeks ago and he's like, oh, I think it's all over. No one's wearing a mask <laughs> because they were still wearing them in New know. Zealand. So I wonder if we do take it from the perspective of vulnerable people, especially those who, as you say, are immunosuppressed uh, or immunocompromised, and there are many reasons for that, this is a spectrum of people who are now essentially feeling that they have to lock down to not go out. Um, and if they're not seeing these kind of protocols, like just literally opening windows in an office space or, or in a cafe or in a, a retail space, I guess there's a lot of apprehension about these rules being lifted from society in particular, because I think they're the ones who are most affected. Yeah, look, I mean, first and foremost, the compulsion to comply with public health recommendation it should be the same if it's isolation of contacts or if it's 
other public health measures that the AHPPC or others, are, you know, the authorities are suggesting in place of that. So if it's compulsory to be in ISO, and that, that is not a recommendation, but a mandated uh, thing, and you're removing it and saying, but instead people should wear masks when they should go out, then that should be compulsory. Um, you know, so that's the easy frontline statement. If one's a recommendation, then maybe the other can be a recommendation. If one's compulsory and mandated, then the other can be compulsory and mandated. That's important in and of itself. It's not the whole answer, though. I think um, we've learned a lot in the pandemic that there's a disconnect between a tool or an intervention or a rule and whether people take up that tool or adhere to that recommendation. People who are sick not getting tested, or if they are tested, they still go about their business before they get a result. Or um, even when they get a positive result, they don't isolate. And, and now with a rat test, of course, that's really possible. So adherence, I don't use the word compliance so much, but you know what we're talking about is compliance with all of those things or, or wanting to get vaccinated or whatever is a neglected science, right? It is deeply neglected science in the pandemic. The science of making fantastic tools has not been neglected. It's been brilliantly approached. And Australian and state and territory governments have played a big part in that. So they've done an amazing job on that front. But I can't sit here and tell you what it would take to make people in different communities, in different settings, get tested or want to take up the vaccine or want to wear a mask or want to get a better mask or uh, I can't tell you what that is. That is a social science. And, you know, this sort of community-engaged, community-led um, investigation of what it would take, including the messaging around it, you know. So I can say we need a few things in place. We need the right policy settings first. Transmission matters, vaccination matters, and some of these public health measures, not restrictions, public health measures to augment the vaccines are really important. And you want everyone from the prime minister to all of the premiers saying that they don't at the moment. Mm. So we would, be, we would be a long way ahead of the game if they were all united on that front to start with. And then to say, you know, I hate the whole concept of mandating anything, but in the end, we do do it as a combination of, of making it a rule and of educating as to why, for example, on our roads, I gave the analogy before about how we just do agree to live under quite strict rules when you think about it. And that's because if we don't, we know the consequences. But around that is an education campaign with authenticity, explaining why we need to do those things. We need to move into that space for COVID measures. The bitter reality is that we've given ourselves something we have to learn to live with and I don't mean euphemistically do nothing about I mean in the truest sense learn to live with for years to come right for years to come you know so what can we put in place to protect as best we can our whole community with a special focus on those who are living in fear as you point out there are millions of those not just a handful even if there was a handful that's enough for me but we're talking about millions of Australians who live in fear, knowing that if they get infected, there's a real concern for them. So what's the reasonable balance? And so I'd like to see those policy settings right first and foremost with our leaders and an education campaign explaining why they're so important. And then we can debate around the margins. And we might decide, I'm not hung up on whether in low times contacts of those infected can't go out or not you know there might be rules around that though if they all wore an n95 mask I, I could probably live with it in lower transmission times for example whenever they were with somebody else out of respect for that other person given the fact that they uh, as every chance they either will be or already are infected in the next few days and every close contact needs to think like that because that's um, unfortunately a reality at the moment any one particular measure, you know, the nuanced rules around it are less important than these bigger concepts being embraced by our leaders, being communicated strongly by our leaders. And then we can almost at a community level say what works, what works for us to make this, this work with, they've given us our marching orders. We know uh, we need to reduce transmission. 
We know we need to all get vaccinated. We know we need to mitigate airborne spread and we know we need to keep testing and isolation and, and quarantine going. How can we do that in a way that works best for our rural community in northwestern Victoria? Or how can we do that that works best for inner city Sydney or Melbourne? Because you'll get different answers, right? So get the framework right and then get the, the you know, sort of the community-driven social science right to get the compliance up rather than just sort of sledgehammer mandated rules, which I'm not ruling out. They do make a difference, you know, especially in acute emergency times. But I don't think they're they're where the main discussion needs to be. Mm. I think you're right with the public health messaging, and that's something that has really dropped off. And it's also become very contradictory. And I think that's why so many people are confused, because on the one, one hand, they're being told, and they were being told, well, we just need vaccines. You just need to get vaccinated. That's your ticket out of here. That's what you have to do. That's all I'm asking of you. Then you can go off and have fun. That was pretty much the message. And I mean, it may have been more relevant to Delta, but it's not really relevant now in the it situation that we're in. It still wasn't relevant to Delta. Yeah, it was no. more relevant, as you imply, but it certainly wasn't the, uh, the case. It wasn't the then. answer. Exactly. No. So we were kind of sold at the time. This is what's going to happen. This is your reward. Uh, now things have changed and I'm gathering politicians don't want to take away the reward that they gave everyone. And that's the awkward conversation that we need to be having as a general public. And you've already said here we need a vaccines plus strategy. As you've pointed out, it's actually really simple. I mean, you literally could just open a window on one side and a window on the other side, have a CO2 monitor in your place, which I've got one at home. I do that every day to ventilate my house. You know, it's really easy and you can see it go down straight away, you know, to like 450 from 800 or something like that in your house. You know, wearing an N95, easy. I actually find them more comfortable than the other masks. You know, these are things, yeah, that, I mean, we both understand. And I'm sure that those who would be black-minded like us would do as well if they had the public messaging, had the tools and understanding, weren't receiving a different message through the media and from politicians. So I think that's what's been of value today, I hope, is that people take that away from this conversation. But Brendan, I just wanted to finish the conversation on something I saw you tweeting over January, and that was because we did see a really high tick up in deaths, and we're still seeing an ongoing number of deaths. We saw 180 Australians die last week of COVID. We're seeing that continue. And if transmission continues the way it is, the deaths will continue the way they are. So you mentioned something called baseline deaths and that we're essentially kind of accepting a baseline amount of deaths. And I wonder if you could, I guess, explain to us what we are essentially entering into, what kind of bargain we're entering into if we do accept ongoing transmission like this in terms of loss of life. Yeah, my death... um... Baseline death discussion is based around two things. One is what's actually happening. And the other is what the lessons of sort of comparable developed country economies have been tolerating for a while. So the UK, for example, over the last nine months has had as many deaths. They've had 40,000 deaths, right? Which is as many as they had in the first wave. They've had three big waves, two big waves, and then this flat peak where deaths have not dipped to very low numbers at all. They've not gone up to very high numbers either, but they've been between 100 and 300 a day. They're at 300 a day in the UK, which is the equivalent of about 40 to 100 a day in Australia, if you correct for population. They're tolerating that. They are tolerating that. Now, that is a very big number for Australia. So if, if, we, if we were to have you know, 100 deaths a day, is, uh, is, of course, 36,000 people uh, would die in a year. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have deaths like that, but those US and you, US is even worse than the UK. So that's what, you know, sort of countries like ours are tolerant. That seems to be a price they're willing to pay. Now, we've not had that discussion in Australia. Is that is that what we would do? We're at the moment on about 4,000 deaths for 2022. Uh, so, of course, we could easily reach something like 10,000 deaths a year, 30 deaths a day is about 10,000 deaths. And we're on an average of 30 deaths a day now. We have in Australia normally 450 deaths every day, you know, that we as public health and, and health professionals try to get down to a smaller number. 
COVID is adding 5 to 10% on average to that without us batting an eyelid. And of course, if the, ne- if the next major variant comes along, let's hope it doesn't, but it could be you know, a significant increase. I am astonished we're tolerating numbers like 4,000 deaths already this year and an ongoing likelihood of at least that number again. It's mind-blowing to me. We talk about an influenza year, a bad influenza year in Australia. That's 1,000 deaths. We've had that twice in the last decade. So, you know, just the Omicron wave itself smashed that many times over. So this is back to our COVID is not the flu. COVID is definitely not, um, definitely not the flu. So look, the, the baseline death thing is, is really disturbing to me. And, it, you know, and the discussion around it that, well, those who are dying are either old or have pre-existing health conditions. I mean, you know, heaven help me if that's where we're going as a society to say that that's somehow an okay discussion. But you will hear that from all of our leaders qualifying as they say how sorry they are. There's a certain number of deaths each day. They've stopped saying they've stopped even talking about it, even in the slightest. It's extraordinary to me, our tolerance of deaths. But I don't know what baseline we'll have. We're going up and down here. Uh, We haven't gone below where we are now at about seven-day average of 26, 27. We're obviously heading up again because of the BA2 wave. Uh, how high we'll go, I don't know, but you know, we might go to 50 to 100 deaths a day for a while, I imagine. Vaccines, of course, wane. Immunity wanes as well to the previous infection and to vaccines. And the virus evolves to change. And of course, we become more and more open in society. So there's a lot more transmission back to our earlier discussion. All of those things mean we have uh, you know, sort of a worrying time ahead a really big community decision to make to say do we care i mean i can't believe i need to even say that but at the moment it doesn't seem like we really care that that's happening you know and and you know we'll have to see what happens overseas as well we, we haven't talked about what is happening overseas and of course there's an awful lot of virus in unvaccinated people still around the world there's 2.7 billion people in the world who it's a third of the world have not received a single dose. And obviously that's horribly unethical and, and they're going to suffer directly as a result of that. But also they're factories for new variants. So whatever we do here in Australia isn't going to affect that. We need to roll up our sleeves and support efforts around the world to get those people vaccinated but, you know, yes, other places have worse death rates than ours, uh, but that's no reason why, why we should be comfortable with, um, with the death rate we've got. We need to have a discussion. And maybe society says, yep, we're willing. I'm not, but maybe the society says we're willing to, to tolerate that. But I, I don't see us having really had that discussion at all. No, no, we definitely haven't had that discussion. Uh, we have been told that we should be downplaying it because of people's supposedly pre-existing conditions that will lead to their untimely death. I still do check the age brackets and the people who are dying. And I do see 30 year olds who are double vaccinated as of last week, dying of COVID, who as New South Wales Health said, didn't have an underlying health condition. That doesn't make that person better or worse than the person who died from a pre-existing condition and COVID. But it does point out that everyone should be concerned about this virus, whether they have a pre-existing condition or not, no matter what their age is. Obviously, if you're older, you're in a greater risk area, but maybe our complacency is because we think it's not us. It's not about us. It's about other people and it's outside of our sphere. So, you know, why should we concern ourselves with it? Yeah, I think there are also reasons that I do understand. I think we are traumatised. I think we as a world are traumatised. I think we as a community are traumatised. I get that. You know, mm. we are. And thinking, you know, I just there's not much more I can take of this. I mean, those sort of things I get. I absolutely get. But it's not an excuse, especially as leaders, to not speak honestly with people about the circumstance we're in and say, yeah, I, I hear that. But here's what we're facing. And how can we come at a reasonable middle ground that recognizes we we really must do all we can within reason to protect everyone in our community those we can see and those we can't see and you know that means i think stepping up and getting vaccinated even if you think you're a young person who doesn't need their third dose or whatever stepping up and getting vaccinated do your bit for the community Uh, it also means being serious about those other public health measures as individuals and most especially as policymakers. 
both sides. I mean, individuals should say, I am not going to that restaurant that can't guarantee it has made some efforts to have clean air for me. I know I don't go uh, yeah. in that circumstance, right? That's our duty to do it. You've, you, you know, policy will change pretty quickly once that happens. And, you know, there are some good signs in, in Victoria, which has suffered the most. There are some good signs about mitigating in schools, mitigating in other uh, circumstances, the air, 61,000 filtration units were bought over the summer and implemented in schools. This is a good step forward. And, you know, my challenge to all policymakers is get on board the airborne mitigation revolution for the sake of COVID, for the sake of flu, for the sake of respiratory illnesses more generally, for the sake of bushfire, smoke and pollutants. You know, treat the air like you treat the water so brilliantly. You know, we demand clean water. Let's demand clean air in our publicly shared spaces. You know, that is happening and we can be laggards or we can be leaders. And, uh, and I you know, very much hope that nationally we're going to be leaders in that front. I think we're going to step closer to it with more conversations like this, Brendan. So thank you so much for taking the time to educate us because I know people will feel more empowered hearing this information and knowing what we can do and realising that we all can actually do things to stop the spread and to protect ourselves, but also, I think more importantly, to think about everyone else as well. So thank you so much for giving us your time and your expertise and also your honesty and your passion. And I really hope that things do turn around for all of our sakes. Uh, thanks so much. It's my absolute pleasure. And you know, I'd just like to leave you and all the listeners with things, uh, especially the science doesn't stand still. You know, the tools that we have in a year's time uh, will be much better than the tools we have now. We haven't talked about the drugs. We haven't talked about the better vaccines that are on the way. Vaccines that block transmission, not just prevent severe disease. This is all happening, right? We just don't have to sit back and accept the current circumstance. Let's, let's hold it off as best we can because the cavalry is coming. Mm. Um, so it, there, there, is, there are better days ahead. Just don't have just to hold the line. that people need to, to die or get long COVID or get sick in the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, we, we need to hold the line exactly right. Yeah, well, let's hold the line. I love that. I think that should be part of a messaging campaign. Love hold it. the line. The cavalry's on the way. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brendan. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.